Welcome to another episode of the Moneyball Benefits Podcast. My name is Scott Wham, and I'm the Director of Compliance and Innovation for One Digital's Philadelphia office. And I'm really excited about today's presentation. You know, the Moneyball Benefits Podcast focuses on conversations that help employers understand emerging trends and strategies that put them in a position to be as efficient as possible with their dollars. You know, looking ahead to 2024, we're anticipating 2024 to be an extremely volatile year. You know, turn on the news. Um, world events are pretty volatile right now. Um, you know, we have a Congress that, that can't seem to get itself together. Um, we have a lot of financial headwinds that are that are um, looming on the horizon. And all, all the while, we're trying to attract and retain top talent. So now more than ever, employers really need to be as efficient as humanly possible with their dollars. So today I'm joined by my friend and colleague, George Papagilis, who is our national practice leader here at One Digital for a really interesting solution for employers called Captives. Um, George, why don't you take a second and give us a little bit of background of how you got to One Digital, how you got into the captive space, um, and anything you'd like to share about yourself? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Scott. Well, I'm a New England guy, first and foremost, born in Boston, school in Rhode Island, and I've been in Connecticut now for 30 years. Um, and when I came to Connecticut back in the, you know, let's say mid-90s, Hartford was the insurance capital of the world. So I kind of fell into insurance at that time. And I started with Cigna and went through their underwriting program. So by trade, I'm an underwriter working with, you know, mid-sized and large group employers. So I've really understood from a pretty early time, kind of the, the mechanics of fully insured versus self-insured, which I know we're going to talk about in a few minutes. Um, and then after, you know, about 10 years at Cigna, I really, I really wanted to kind of, you know, stretch myself a little bit more and work more closely with, with employers. And so I, I flipped over to the consulting side back in the late 2000s. And uh, really since that time, I've had a lot of different jobs, but at the, uh, the core of what I do is I, I like to consult and help employers uh, you know, figure out what has become, well, has been and has become, uh, you know, one of their major issues is, you know, how to sort of provide really good benefits to employees to attract and retain them, uh, while at the same time balancing what usually is number two or three costs for most employers. So really just help kind of those those employers with their, you know, strategic plans going forward so they can balance those two objectives. So historically, George, you know, I remember entering the the industry 10 years ago, and there seemed to be this line where employers of a certain size would consider self-funding. And if you were below that line, historically, you, you'd be purchasing a fully insured insurance product that's administered by a carrier, issued by a carrier, underwritten by a carrier. Um, and and, and um, unfortunately, lacking the data that carriers don't necessarily want you to see. Um, over the past five or so years, there's been a really big push down market towards self-funding. We've we've done this on previous episodes of the podcast, but I think it is really important to start off by saying, by defining what is a fully insured health plan, what is a self-funded health plan, then we'll talk about how, how that ecosystem has changed a little bit. So George, Give us some insight into a fully insured health plan. What what are the upsides, downsides? Tell tell us how they work. Sure. Yeah. I mean, fully insured, just to kind of keep it simple, is you pay a premium dollar uh, to an insurance company and they kind of handle everything from there. You use their network, you use their member services, uh, they pay claims, and you know, you don't see there's no return, right? So you pay the premium and 
you kind of win or lose depending upon how your claims performance is. And what I don't like about, so, so the plus is it's very easy. So let's just start there. It's easier, right? It's, it's um, the carriers are generally known, right? It's a Cigna, Aetna, Blue Cross, United game, typically, unless there's a local HMO. So it's familiar, it's comfortable. It's, it's generally easier in terms of the administration from an employer. The, the downside, in my opinion, is it lacks flexibility. It lacks transparency. Um, it lacks the ability for an employer to kind of control their own destiny, right? You're kind of dependent on the insurance company to tell you, here's your renewal. There's really not a whole lot you can do about it. And so historically, one of the, I'll call it a tactic, not a strategy, has been to go to go to bid, right? You bid your plan to all the carriers nationally or locally, and you kind of you kind of have them fight over you as an employer. Um, and sometimes you can get somebody to come down. Sometimes you can't. Beyond that, the, the tactics become, do we make our plan design worse for the employee and do we charge the employees more? So, so to me, the main tactic within a fully insured environment, while it's easier, has been to cost shift to employees. And generally speaking, I always say employees don't like three things. Don't change my carrier. Don't make my plan design worse and don't charge me more money. And in the fully insured environment, I think historically, one or two or all three of those things has been the primary way for employers to keep costs down. And so that that always frustrated me personally, both when I was at Cigna as an underwriter and then when I came onto the scene here as a consultant 16 years ago. And so I've always looked for alternative ways to help all employers meet those those goals, which are almost always, how do I attract and retain employees through a comprehensive benefits program? And how do I keep costs down at the same time? So, so George, you know, you said something that's interesting where you said um, when you're in a fully insured model that your renewal is based on your claims experience, but is that uniform across the board? Is it uniform across the board that fully insured employers are going to be rated based on their, their individual risk profile and the claims that they incur? Yeah, it's a great question, Scott. So, so I'm going to say yes and no, right? And 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 this is where size does matter. Um, you know, the smaller the group, the less likely they are to get claim data that they can really use in an educated way to help them um, with their strategic planning. So, generally speaking, for employers that might have a hundred employees or less, getting data at all or getting good data is usually a challenge, and it does vary state by state. Uh, some states are a little bit better than others. Once you start getting over 100, um, you know, employees on your plan, you can start to get a little better data. And obviously, the bigger you are, the better the better it is in terms of the data you get. So while there's always limitations on the data you get with a fully insured group, because the insurance carrier is basically paying your claims, they are the plan sponsor. Um, the bigger you are, the better data that you will get. And so it really makes it difficult, you know, for those small to let's call it mid-sized employers in that fully insured market to do a whole lot, because generally speaking, that data is pretty limited. So you could have a 60 life group. You know, that's the lingo we always use. We always talk about lives in a group, uh, but let's just say you have a 60 employee company uh, with maybe a, a hundred or so dependents enrolled on the plan, a hundred total uh, participants on the plan. There's a chance that let's say you're a, a young, healthy, vibrant workforce that doesn't utilize a ton of, of healthcare, um, annual well visits, you know, the acute sickness here or there, but nothing chronic. Um, there's a chance if I'm understanding you correctly, that 
that those companies may not get the full benefit of their positive risk profile being in a fully insured structure, that's, being in a fully insured plan. Yeah, that's 100% accurate. And, and just to add to that, Scott, so the, the answer is yes, they, they may not actually get the benefit of, of really good claim performance. But usually when they're, when groups are in that size range, you know, 100, maybe even 200, you know, the actuarial people would say that the group's claim experience is not credible. So what happens sometimes is not only don't you get the full impact of good good claim experience, but you're going to get you're going to have the carrier pool be an effect for your rates as well. And so if the carrier pool runs poorly, that's going to impact your rates negatively. Now, on the flip side, if the carrier pool is running well and your claim data is running well, you know, you're probably going to get a pretty good, you know, pretty good renewal. But what I would tell you is the carriers generally, um, and this varies year by year, they're kind of managing to a trend number, a claim trend number that's probably in the eight or nine percent range. So even when they underwrite you like correctly or accurately, they're underwriting you to run at eight or nine percent, which I would argue is unsustainable on an ongoing basis for most employers. So it's not like, you know, in most things where people are trying to, you know, manage things at two or three percent inflation, medical trends are usually three or four times higher than that. And that's what the carrier is kind of a ascribe to. So even in a good year, you might get an eight or nine percent increase. Well, I can tell you I live in Philadelphia and I don't know a single insurance carrier that has B level office space. <laughs> you know, I, <laughs> I I look at I look at a lot of insurance carriers in Center City, Philadelphia that have a lot of rooms they got to pay for and a lot of salaries they got to pay. Um, so let's pivot, let's pivot to the other model here. Let's let's talk a little bit about self-funding. So sure. so high level, high level What's the differentiator between being fully insured and self-funded? Let's talk a little bit about self-funding. Yeah. So I think I think there's a couple of things. So, you know, I always tell people, so number one, it, there is a shift, right? I mentioned earlier, like for a fully insured group, the carrier is the plant sponsor. So they kind of control everything. In a self-insured environment, the, the employer becomes the plant sponsor. And that that designation kind of under ERISA, not to get too into the weeds from a federal perspective, gives them a lot of latitude on really optimizing you know, the things I mentioned earlier. So optimizing flexibility, optimizing transparency and optimizing the ability to control their own destiny, right? As a self-funded employer, you get data regardless of size. Um, you can be way more flexible on plan design that you offer to your employees. You get way more flexibility on different, you know, engagement or risk management programs that you might want to roll out to your employees, right? So you can do a lot of stuff when you're self-funded that can really help you in a better way, I think, manage those two goals that I always kind of bring up. Um, how do I how do I offer a really good program to attract and retain employees, and how do I save money at the same time? So self insurance is going to give you those things in a better way. Now, some people get scared, right? Employers might say, "Oh my gosh, we're not ready for that." And so I always tell them, like, at the end of the day, you have to kind of break it down into the premium dollar. So with fully insured, you're just paying that dollar to the insurance company, and like I said earlier, you either win or lose if you have really good performance. You could argue you lose there because the carrier wins, or if you have really poor experience, claim experience, then maybe maybe you win and the carrier loses. Um, the premium dollar is exactly the same in a self-insured environment. It's just the pieces are kind of broken up a little bit differently. So yes, you pay a fee to use a carrier or a third-party administrator in their rented network or their network and their member services, right? So that's usually 10 or 15% of the premium dollar. And then, you know, and that includes stop loss insurance to protect you from risk. 
individually or in the aggregate. And then really the biggest piece though, are the claims, right? So probably call it 80% of the premium dollar are those claims. And so those are just going to run through your bank account and you're going to pay them as they come, as they come up. And so because you have visibility into your claims, you can start to identify good trends and bad trends, and you can start to mitigate those trends much more proactively and purposefully than in a uh, fully insured environment. And I'll just give you one example because it comes up all the time. Most employers have a high prevalence of diabetes in their population. So sometimes the full insured carriers offer that and maybe you can put it into place, but it's usually pretty watered down. A, a, a diabetes management a program. A diabetes program, yes, right. management program. Whereas in a self-insured environment, you can choose to use a best-in-class diabetes uh, you know, platform or, or company that might not be affiliated with that carrier or that third-party administrator. So it just gives you a lot more flexibility to see your data and then to actually act on your data. The other really quick point I'll make, Scott, is um, is pharmacy. You know, we, you know, pharmacy is probably most people know. I mean, the cost of pharmacy, all the drugs we see on TV, I mean, they're just going up exponentially and they have for a number of years. When you're fully insured, you cannot see the contract. So you have zero idea the pricing that you're getting or the contractual provisions that you're getting. And in most cases, those contracts are favorable to the carrier. When you're self-funded, you get to see that contract. So you know exactly what the pricing is, what the rebates you're getting, the contractual provisions, and, and sort of you can make that contract much more favorable to you. And I would just tell you, generally speaking, the savings that I've seen on groups that just flip from full insured to self-funded without really doing a whole lot of other things is probably somewhere in the you know, four or five percent range overall. So it's probably like a 20% savings on pharmacy spend which equates to maybe a you know three, four or 5% savings overall. And that's with like little disruption to employees. And usually it's a better impact to employees because pricing's better. So that's a huge, huge opportunity for any group that's fully insured today. So let's, let's, I want to talk about two things real quick. You brought up the one point, which is a really good one that you said, you don't want to go into the weeds, but you're talking to a compliance guy. So <laughs> I like the point that you brought up. Uh, the point you brought up was that when you're self-funded, you're only subject to federal law. Right. Uh, you said ERISA, which is which is one of the laws that you would be subject to if you're if you're if you're self-funded. But the more broadly speaking, you're subject to only federal law. Why that's important to some employers is one, um, some states are heavily mandated with coverages uh, that can be very expensive. So if you're if you're looking at, an, at economic uncertainty, I remember when I first entered the industry, we were on the heels of the Great Recession and employers were trying to pinch every dollar they could find being self-funded if you are in a state like new jersey or massachusetts or connecticut or new york or california where there are heavy state coverage mandates you can you can avoid some of those mandates you can avoid all of the state coverage mandates by being self-funded because you're only subject to federal law on the flip side of that on the flip side of that when you're self-funded let's say you live in a state like pennsylvania where I live, that is a low mandate state, but you're competing for talent in New York and you're competing for talent in New Jersey that are two heavily mandated states. New Jersey, for instance, requires heavy fertility coverage, um, infertility coverage. IVF is covered in New Jersey. Employers in Pennsylvania that are competing for New Jersey talent 
can decide to cover IVF even though Pennsylvania doesn't require it in a self-funded model. You know, you can you can decide to expand your coverage and you can decide to contract it um, as the economic scenario dictates that type of decision. So really important point. I like that weedy point, but I want to ask you a question about financial. Hey, Scott, before you go, let me, I just want to add to it. There was a stat and I don't know if this is entirely true today, but on the state mandate. So I'm in Connecticut. You mentioned it. It's, it's a pretty heavily mandated state. And there was a stat at one time where the state mandates in Connecticut equate to about 20 cents of the premium dollar. So it's a, you know, it's a pretty significant amount of cost associated with the state mandates here in Connecticut. Now that may have changed a little bit over the last few years, but, but that was always something that somebody talked I, about. I would so. think, I would think it's probably gone up. Yeah. It's, probably it's changed. I, I would think it's probably, it's probably increased. I want to yeah. ask you a question, you know, cause I, I was on a call with a prospect the other day uh, who was, you know, hundred employees, give or take fully insured model um, had not really been presented thoughtful self-funding arrangements. And they didn't really understand how we financially model moving to a to a self-funded arrangement from fully insured. You talked, you made you made reference to the premium dollars being the same. How do you how do you budget in a self-funded model? Because I think when when a lot of people are hearing, hearing self-funded for the first time, they might think unlimited liability, mm-hmm. right? They might think I'm on the hook for unlimited liability when claims come in, but but that's not how we operate, is it? Is it, George? I mean, how do we model? that claim dollar for, for an employer. Employee. Yeah, it's a good, it's a really good point. So we, you know, we have underwriters like me and we have actuaries here as well. And so typically what we do is we leverage our internal resources, those two, two departments in particular underwriting and, and actuarial. And we develop, like we do the underwriting and we develop really what I would call, I'll call it kind of two numbers for our, our employer clients. One would be kind of an expected cost. So when you think about the premiums that they pay on a fully insured environment, we're building up the premium equivalent, which usually are, I always tell people probably like, assume like eight to maybe 15% lower on the self-insured side, because you don't have to pay premium taxes. You can avoid some ACA fees. Some of the mandates, maybe you don't you know, put into effect. The pharmacy contract I mentioned could be some savings. So I would say in general, when you look at sort of premium on a fully insured group versus premium equivalent that we help build up on a self-funded group, I would say it's somewhere between eight and 15% savings. Um, kind of just when you look at it that way. Now, I think where you're going, Scott, is like, like clients or employers get nervous because yeah, like, okay, well, like what if I get a million dollar claim? Like, how am I going to handle that? And so part of the whole process is to put in place what's called stop loss. And this is probably a good segue into the captive at some yep. point. Sure. Um, you know, we we help clients put in place stop loss, which, you know, without going into too much detail, we put in place stop loss that protects an employer for for high cost claimants on an individual basis. So we cap their liability for an individual. So if there's a million dollar claim, usually an employer pays a small fraction of that that falls underneath the individual or specific stop loss level. And then we also usually put in place what's called aggregate stop loss, which means you know they'll usually never pay more than maybe 20 to 25% of that expected premium equivalent. So there's definitely a little bit of risk and reward with self-funding, right? If you manage it appropriately and you run at or better than that expected number, which is usually what we recommend you know, setting the budget at, um, then, then they win. Um, but, you know, in some years, you know, you could have, a, you know, a poorly running claim year 
And then you have sort of a little bit more exposure until you're capped kind of at your maximum liability, which is, again, usually it could be anywhere from 10, 15, 20, 25% more than the expected number based on, you know, the arrangement that that we would help kind of put put in place for that group. But by, that answer your question? Yeah. But so, 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 so essentially what you're doing is you're taking that deductible, that, that deductible gap and converting that gap into a premium equivalency that you can show that you can use the model. But the big takeaway is essentially what you're doing is it's it's similar to a high deductible health plan if you're offering it in a fully insured setting. If you increase the the variable cost exposure, you decrease your fixed cost exposure. So if you if you increase that deductible for the stop loss premium, the higher that deductible is, the lower premium you're going to pay for that stop loss policy. And then you have the variable upside and occasionally downside of the risk in between. Is that is that a fair summation? Yeah, yeah. And I and I think the breakout, if you kind of think about that premium dollar, to me, you know, somewhere around 10% or so would be kind of like the admin fees that you pay to the carrier or the third party administrator maybe another 10% of those stop loss fees for that protection. And then 80% of your claims. It, it could vary a little bit by group, but that's kind of the breakdown that I generally see. Um, so it's not a lot of money. I always equate stop loss to like car insurance. You know, it's, you know, we we buy car insurance, not that we want to have a car accident, right? We want to, but we want to have an insurance policy in the event that we have a car accident. And to me, stop loss is very similar, right? You, you pay this premium for this stop loss coverage. Not that you want people in your population to get sick, but if you have somebody that gets sick and it's expensive, hemophilia, um, cancer, those are usually some of the high cost claimants. You've got this insurance policy, just like that car insurance policy that protects the employer from those catastrophic risks. So so let's get into the specific species of self-funding um structure that you specialize in. Let's talk. And I know, George, you know everything about all the different self-funding models. So <laughs> so while you're involved- I'm going to have to send you like 10 or 15 bucks after this, Scott. While right? you're involved with captives, I know that you're an expert across all of the spectrum, <laughs> whether it's reference-based pricing level funding, you know, HRAs, every form of self-funding that exists in between. But let's, let's talk about captives because I think um, captives are a really interesting concept for that midsize employer uh, who maybe has historically been fully insured. Um, and they might've heard the term captive more in the property and casualty side, not as much in the health and welfare benefits side. So let's, let's talk about what is a captive? Well, you know, yeah. let's just start there. What is, what is a yeah. captive when it comes to, a, comes to a health plan? All right, let me come to that. Let me make a couple quick points, right? So um, this is an exciting time. And you, you touched on this a little bit at the beginning, Scott, like what you said was hundred percent true. Like if you go back, maybe, Five or ten years ago, if you were a small to mid-sized employer, let's say maybe under two or three hundred employees, there really wasn't much out there. You know, you, the, the carriers had a lot of limitations on groups that size being self-funded, and so probably after a few years of the ACA being out, it did create a lot of innovation, captives, and really other things being part of that. So I say it's an exciting time, primarily for this lower, you know, the small and mid-sized uh, size employers because there's a lot more they can do today than just either fully insured or be self-insured on their own. And so um, that that's just one point that I would make. The other point that I would make, like, why did I kind of look into this captive stuff in the first place? I started looking into it in 2016 because I was working with clients that were super frustrated. Like they're even more so now, but clients, you know, and employers were frustrated because, you know, absorbing an eight or 9% increase every year or gouging a plan design or 
jacking up employee contributions was just not going over well. And so I was looking for an alternative for my clients to, to do something different. The ones that were full, I had some that were fully insured, some that were self-insured and some that were level funded self-insured, which is kind of another, you know, kind of popular innovative program that's out there. But they leave money on the table with those programs sometimes, you know, and so the captive was sort of that next logical. So what? So what's next? And really, that's what that's what I did. I just I just sort of started this captive in 2018 um, and it's it's worked really well. But anyway, so I just wanted to give you that history. So this was kind of the next step for a lot of those groups that want to do something different to manage this expense that they have without really impacting their employees a ton. So what is a captive? I mean. You know, a lot of people just tell you a captive is kind of a reinsurance entity. It's, it's 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 really a medical stop loss program where like-minded employers come together and they really kind of share in the risk and reward of a stop loss contract. I mean, that's sort of the technical term of it. I like to kind of take it a step further. I, I call it a program that has the right third-party administrator. That's kind of the entity that's going to like, that's like the carrier. That's like the insurance carrier. Um, the right pharmacy benefit manager to help manage those pharmacy claims that are kind of going up exponentially that I mentioned and the right risk management program. So we talk diabetes. Do we need a diabetes program or a cancer program or something else? So to me, it's sort of all of those things kind of in a purposeful and proactive way with this group medical stop loss policy on top coming together to really meet in a more efficient and effective way, I think those two employer goals that I keep referencing, you know, how do I balance really offering good benefits to my employees so I can attract and retain them and keep them healthy and while at the same time keeping costs down. So, so to me, it's a program that's sort of foundationally the right third-party administrator, the right PBM, the right risk management programs, all sort of under this umbrella of a medical stop loss carrier um, so I'll stop there just to see if you have any probing questions, Scott, and then I can, I can add to it if you want. Yeah. So, so let's talk about the aggregation that occurs within a captive, right? Mm -hmm. So, so if an employer is trying to conceptualize, you know, what is, what, as I think you did a good job of summarizing, you know, the, the, the stop loss contract and having programs in place and benefiting from the right TPA together, but what's the, what's the importance of the, of the togetherness, if that makes sense, if what's the importance yeah, yeah. of of the aggregation of the employers. Yeah, let me let me get into that. So so if you know for people that might be watching who are self-insured today you pay a stop loss premium to the insurance carrier and you don't see it back, right? You just paid it and you, you know maybe you got some high claimants, maybe you didn't, maybe you got some reimbursement, maybe you didn't. But generally speaking you pay the premium, and you don't see any 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 money back. What the captive does relative to this the stop loss contract is that you you pay this premium to the stop loss care behind it. And we, 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 we use multiple cares. We like Berkeley primarily, but we use others as well. So you pay the premium to let's say Berkeley and then Berkeley is actually seeded a percentage of that stop loss premium into the captive. Okay. And it, and it varies depending on what captive you're in. It can vary. Like our, our, our core captive with Berkeley generally seeds about 60% of that gross premium into the captive. Okay. So what happens during the course of, and that's everybody, all of the groups sort of collectively are putting, you know, having put into this captive about 60%. And then let's say during the year, employer one who has, let's just say a $50,000 individual stop loss uh, threshold. That means they're going to pay the first $50,000 of claims. And let's just say employer one has a million dollar 
hemophiliac claimant. Okay. So the way that would work is employer number one in the captive is going to pay the first 50,000, kind of the predictable amount. The next 225 of that claim. Now this is just, this is unique to just this captive I'm talking about. Other captives have different quote floating deductibles, but in, in this particular captive I'm talking about, there's a floating deductible of 225. So of, of that million dollar claim, $225,000 of it are going to be paid by those collective funds in the captive. And then the remaining, um, let's see, let's do my math. Let's see, that's 275. So the remaining 725 is, is, is basically paid by Berkeley, the stop loss carrier. So let's just, let's just go to employer two. Let's say employer two has the same million dollar claim, but they chose to have a $100,000 individual stop loss level. So the mechanics would work the same. They're going to basically retain and pay the first 100,000. The next 225 of that million dollars would be paid by the collective funds within the captive. And then anything over the 100,000 plus the 225. So I think that's, let's see, 675 would be transferred. That risk and, and liability would be transferred to Berkeley and they would pay it. So what happens is you kind of smooth out catastrophic risks, which candidly, when you look at your claim data, probably on average 1% of your population drives maybe 25 to upwards of 45% of your costs. And so this is a way to sort of smooth that out by really sharing in the risk and sharing in the reward. And the reward part of it is if- That, that was going to be my next question is what, what's the what's the reward of sharing that, that yeah. risk in that manner? So, so yep. the rewards are bigger, but I'm going to, I'll kind of focus just on this stop loss captive piece first. So if- at the end of the treaty year or the plan year, there's surplus dollars remaining in the captive layer. Those funds are returned to the groups in the captive. So there's an opportunity to get money back, whereas you don't really have that ability in the traditional stop loss environment. You just pay it and you, you don't see it again. In the captive, you um, have the opportunity to get money back. And you know, knock on wood, our, our core captive, which has been in effect since 2018, has returned a surplus every year to uh, the members in it to the tune of like close to $3.5 million. And just the point I would make, Scott, is that's the, like, that's the cherry on top, right? It all comes back in my opinion to, again, the right TPA, the right PBM, the right stop loss carry, the right risk management programs, because at the end of the day, we want to really shrink the cost pile. We don't want to shift it. And so if we can, if we can impact claim trends positively on the front end, that's generally going to lead to that surplus or that cherry on top on the back end. So while all of our groups have had the luxury, I think, of getting a surplus back each year so far, knock on wood. I'm knocking on claim every trend in front of me. Yep. <laughs> our claim trends on the front end have been 1%. So if you think about the fully insured market, we talked about 8 or 9% earlier. And self-funded groups, maybe that trend's a little bit lower. Maybe it's 6 or 7% historically, or at least over the last several years. We're trending at 1%. And we're not saying you've got to change carrier or TPA. You don't have to gouge the employee plan. You don't have to, you know, charge employees more. Most of the groups in our captive, and we're up over, we're, we're probably close to 35 groups in our core captive now. They're just keeping things flat. They're keeping TPAs and carriers the same. But what they're doing is they're doing a lot of risk management on the front end. So I've kind of made this sort of drop the mic comment to our captive members, you know, if we're trending at 1% in the market somewhere between, let's say, six and nine, we've actually helped these collective groups, I would argue, save or at least avoid costs to the tune of probably $40 million or more over five years. Right. And then you add on top of that the fact that they get some money back through the captive potentially, that's money they can reinvest into their 
program, their employee benefits program, or whatever they want to do. And the last point I would make, just to get back to these two goals that all employers have, right? Attract and retain employees through good benefits and save money. We're starting to get good testimonials from our clients and their employees. No, no employee contribution changes for like three, four, five years for some of the groups. Um, we in Connecticut, it's kind of weird, but we've been doing a lot of consumer directed health plans here for probably 15 or 20 years. And we had one of our groups actually reinstitute a PPO plan with copays. Like it doesn't, it sounds weird in some markets, like maybe California or New York or Massachusetts, but like in Connecticut, that's a big deal. And they did that because they've had two successive double digit decreases. So when's the last time you had, you know, a client or an employer have two consecutive double digit decreases in a marketplace that increases by eight or 9% every year. So you've got that, that to me is the win, right? The win is on the front end through better claims management and better claim trends, positive employee experience. And the cherry on top is the surplus through the captive layer that's shared. Well, what's really interesting is, um, you know, I follow this phenomenon fairly closely because I remember when I first, like I, I keep talking about when I first entered the industry as if it was that long ago. Like, I entered the industry 10 years ago, but it was a different time back then for sure. It was. Um, and, and all the rage was cost shifting in, HSA high deductible uh, qualified high deductible health plans set up an HSA and let's let's turn employees in the healthcare consumers and George can see my face right now and you know I'm kind of smirking when I say we're going to turn employees in the healthcare consumers but the the jury's in and cost shifting high deductibles the people who can't afford the deductible is not actually a cost savings measure it's uh it's essentially throwing your hands up and saying I'm going to wait for the catastrophic claim to manifest without being proactive because somebody who doesn't earn enough money to pay those those full negotiated rates when they go to the doctor's office until they hit the deductible, don't seek the treatment they should. And the, the counterintuitive conclusion is that you actually put yourself in a better position by not exposing people to high deductible, having high deductible exposure. You actually control the engagement, it takes people longer to hit their out-of-pocket maximum. They have a greater incentive to pursue more efficient care. So what you're describing in a captive is, look, we're, we're offering superior benefits because that's what effectively manages the risk. I mean, the plan designs that you're describing effectively manage manage the risk, mm-hmm. um, which which is which is and that the surplus to your point is just that cherry on top. It's everything else that packaged together that seems to be the the major benefit. I want to ask you a question about the types of companies that are welcome in the captive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you're asking these employers to share in risk. Right, and the share uh, that captive layer of of, of funding to, to to help pay for those really high claims. I would imagine there are certain expectations placed on employers when they join a captive. Uh, am I am I on the right track here? And you are, you are. That, um, that you're looking for some like mindedness here. Yeah. So I would say this. I like personally, I, and I've been on this sort of self insured bandwagon for a long time. So I I ge- generally think that. Being self-funded and then taking it a step further and joining a cap to where you can kind of share in that risk and reward is good for almost all employers. Now, you know, you could make an argument. Some groups are too small. Maybe some groups are too big. But I would say in general, being self-funded over the course of three, four, five years is going to be a better result for most employers. But when it comes to a captive, there's there's some quantitative stuff and some qualitative stuff that has to be in place from an expectation standpoint. The quantitative stuff is pretty easy and people probably get mad at me for saying this. This is not a spreadsheet exercise, right? Because there's always an irrational market, a carrier 
that's going to come in with some ridiculous number on a fully insured basis because they just want to write business, right? So, so looking at a captive on a spreadsheet is usually not a good indicator of a group being ready to move into a captive. So, you know, the quantitative stuff are, you know, is, is the company running reasonably well? You know, it doesn't have to be running perfectly, but, you know, having a like a like a claims to premium ratio, which is kind of a common metric that's kind of in the in the lower range, like the lower, the better, right? So if it's 50, 60, that's a no brainer, 60%. If it's 70, 80, that's like a good, good, good group. If it starts getting up into like 90, 100, 150, like that's probably not going to be a good group because they've got something going on, right? I think if if the group knows they've got high cost claimants that are that are like significant, like I mentioned earlier, hemophilia kind of a big one, cancer, people taking gene therapy drugs. So there's certain like drugs or conditions that are kind of like a, eh, because they really just, they don't help the group. They don't help the captive, right? Because now you're bringing a group and it's, it's sharing that risk. So it's a little bit bizarro in a way, Scott, because like the best time to go self-funded and to move into a captive is when the, when the group's actually running pretty well. What happens a lot of times in my experience, though, is a group will say, well, you know, I just got a 2%. We got our 20% renewal down to five. So we'll just take the five and we'll revisit a captive later. And then next year they come back and all of a sudden they're at 40 percent renewal. And it's kind of like, well, all right, something happened, right? So it's, it's a little bit bizarro in the marketplace, but I would say, you know, good, good claim performance, not many or, or you know, relatively low high cost claimants are, are good to come in. The, the qualitative stuff, to be honest with you, is probably the cha- more challenging part. The qualitative stuff would be, are we having this conversation with the C-suite from a strategic standpoint versus just HR? It's got to be both. Is the group okay with converting to self-funded if they're fully insured. It's not always easy. Are they willing to change their network? You know, sometimes the basics come into play. Like, are they willing to move away from Blue Cross Blue Shield or whoever their current carrier is in that network? Because a lot of employers, they don't want to dis- disrupt their people. Um, and so those qualitative stuff sometimes come into play and it really comes down to inertia. We're comfortable with, you know, Cigna and their network and it works pretty well and we're okay paying 20% increases every year. When if they just kind of made that decision, to move into a self-insured environment, maybe with a different network or a different carrier TPA, they'd be able to get that 20 down to maybe five or zero on a sustained basis. So those are the groups I would say that are generally, it's like, is the leadership team ready to do something different, right? A lot of people complain about the cost of healthcare, but then they just renew year over year over year with the same types of carriers. Are they ready to move? Yes or no. Are they willing to be self-funded? Yes or no. Are they willing to maybe work with a somebody they don't know or have never heard of before in terms of the third-party administrator or pharmacy benefit manager? That those are probably the bigger hurdles, more subjective and and I would say more kind of in the bucket of inertia than anything. But I would say any group, you know, probably 50 to a thousand are definitely like good fits. There's really no industry in particular. Like our captives are heterogeneous. We've got a liquor distributor, we've got an insurance company. We're in it. So we, we've kind of done the walk and done the talk. Um, we've got some nonprofits in there that have performed really well. We've got some hospitals and healthcare systems. So we've got like boating manufacturers. So like any any industry is really, really good. Um, to me, like I said, quantitatively performance should be pretty good to good. That's a, that's, that's a, that's a start. And then um, qualitatively, the, the, the leadership at the group has to be ready to do something different. So I think, anybody who listens to this conversation in its entirety is going to have interest in having a conversation with you about captives. Um, You know, one of the big differentiators about one digital is having you and having this captive solution um, internal to our, to our agency. 
uh, you, you gave a great kernel there where, you know, groups, the best time to look at self-insuring is when you're running well, you know, so when you get that enticing 2%, 4% rate increase from, from the carrier, that's a time to say, Hey, like our claims are probably pretty good. Let's go, let's go look at some other funding mechanisms. And it's also an indication that carrier probably made a lot of money off of you in the past year. Um, you know, if, I'm, if I, exactly if I, right. if I may be so bold <laughs> as to make that assertion, but, um, how can people get in contact with the captive team at one digital? What, 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 what do they need to do in order to have a conversation to take a look at to see if this is a solution for them? Yeah. I, th- I mean, there's really two ways, right? So, I mean, I think that the, the optimal way would be just, you know, work with our local, you know, one digital sales team or, or consulting team. If, if somebody's already a, an existing client um, that that's sort of the easiest way to go. You know, I'm out on LinkedIn though. I'm, you know, I'm out on social media and stuff like that. So if somebody wanted to reach out to me directly, it's just sort of an introductory, uh, I'm sorry, an introduction to either captives in general or one digital, I'd be more than happy to kind of take, you know, those types of um, requests as well. So either one of those two channels would work fine. Um, be more than happy to talk to anybody who's interested, love love the topic. And uh, like I said, when I started uh, in this business, my whole goal was to, how do, how do I help employers, you know, kind of create optimal health plans that really benefit not only them as an organization, but their employees. And to me, the captive is a great vehicle to do that. Well, George, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to be on the podcast today. Um, we're definitely going to be having you back to drill down into some of this stuff in greater detail. And and like I said earlier, George knows everything about this industry. So he's a good <laughs> guest on any number of topics. You're making me sound old, uh, Scott. No, uh, I appreciate uh, but, it, Scott. Always great talking with you. And I appreciate the time. But uh, thank you for tuning in. And thank you, George, again. And uh, this has been another episode of the Moneyball Benefits Podcast. This is Scott Wham signing off. For-